0: Meditation or all of the things that we do in our life uh, on behalf of our own happiness are things that uh, Equip us to live this life inevitably challenged from one minute to the next so that we can get through this life with a certain amount of peace and ease and At the same time they keep reminding us that the journey that we have is the same as everybody else's journey And they're just doing it over there and we're doing it over here uh, I think it was Longfellow, who said, I'm sure it was Longfellow, but I, I won't get the quote exactly right, who said, if we knew the secret history of all our enemies, it would erase any kind of antipathy that we had for them. That everybody is traveling through this life with uh, the, uh, doing the best they can with what they inherited, what happened to them. As are we, we look around. Um, I always think of this this analogy, I know you've heard me say this before. When I go to visit someone in the hospital, and recently I've been in the hospital in, the, in an intensive care unit. So you walk down the hall and to get to the room where your person is and you go past, in all these other rooms, other people. You don't know those other people, but you look in and they're slightly darkened rooms and. Uh, It's got all kinds of machinery around the person and pipes and tubes and, and family huddled around and you don't know who they are But you know one way or another all these people are struggling to make something out of this situation to be able to stand it And to be able to stand it with enough heart to comfort and enough heart to keep saying to each other we love you To hold each other up in some way like while you're on your way to your person, you realize in that hospital everybody is like you, and everybody's in the same boat. The trouble for me is when I walk out of the hospital, I forget that everybody's in that same boat. Not so dramatically physically challenged at that moment, but everybody's going around with their story, and their pack of life difficulties. You know, even this morning when we were naming the things that happened to all the people that we're concerned about. And some of them we think of, oh, that's a really <coughs> grievous thing, people with um, you know, terrible illnesses and a last, you know, desperate last-minute measures, uh, chemotherapies. <coughs> and young children who are going to be either very disappointed or very elated. Everybody's going along with the 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes. And one of the reasons for that particular instruction look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, is that if you look at any part of our experience, our physical experience, whether our experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, we look at what's the contents of the mind, we're ultimately gonna see that it's all keeping changing. And from moment to moment changing, it's either pleasant and desirable or unpleasant and undesirable. And here we are with this task, it's a monumental human task to keep ourselves enough balanced with the 10,000 joys and 10,000 woes to remember that this is true for everyone. This is, uh, someone said to me once, if you wanted other, you came to the wrong planet. Mm -hmm. This is how it is. (laughs) And with that awareness, to have the same compassionate heart that I feel when I walk down the hall of the intensive care unit, to have it in the world, to look around in the bus and feel the same as you do in the intensive care. Everybody here is suffering. It doesn't mean that we don't have delightful moments and and parties and celebrations, you know, in the middle. Uh, It's a good thing we do. Otherwise, I don't know how we would do this. Yeah.
1: On that vein, um, Joyous Noel just opened in the well in
0: the valley. I saw it two days ago, and I thought about you through the whole movie because you told us that story months ago. It's just a beautiful movie. Oh, good, Mm -hmm. good, good, good.
1: Good. Good. Joyous Noel
0: yeah yeah the, uh, the, uh, that, uh, that's the one that it is why' new no, uh, it's a story I, I guess it's a story of during the first world war on a Christmas Eve for some on uh, in some uncanny way because the the opposing uh forces at that point were near enough to be shooting at each other with rifle with our you know what we even think of now as old artillery. But they could see each other they knew where each other was uh, on that hill and on this hill and they knew who each other was and they came out to the boundary line between them with they unarmed and they shared the uh, brandy and uh, cigarettes and sang it makes me cry they sang Christmas carols and then they went back to each others side and the next day they started shooting each other again you know that is that not beyond incredible, you know? that You think to yourself, you know, we could do that, and we don't. So that's another way. Thank you for telling me that. It's another way of thinking, how can we remember what we could do instead of what we are doing, like with this whole earth? So I'll tell you where I want to start. Oh, the Paramitas charts. I, 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 uh, I made a chart for all of you. It's a two-page chart, so you can take this chart home. Um, uh, it's a chart of Paramitas. If you uh, were here the, during the last few weeks, you know that we've been talking about Paramitas. The word Paramita means uh, having come to the conclusion, the fulfillment of And uh, it means the fulfillment of, excuse me, various virtuous traits. And it has to do with the fact that it's said of the Buddha in his many, many lifetimes before the lifetime in which he woke up and, so to speak, woke up, had his enlightenment experience and understood fully the cause and the end of suffering. Not of pain in the world, because we do have that with bodies and minds, but how we could stop suffering. That his preparation for that enlightenment was perfecting his heart. That we think about the fact that, I, and I just said this morning, that if the mind was clear, that if we actually saw that person over there as a person just like me, a regular person having a life, struggling along the best she or he can, then our hearts open up to them. The person on the bus, the person anywhere. But if we really saw that, we would be nothing but kind. We would be nothing but patient with people. They, you know, they haven't done it yet. Or <coughs> nothing but moral because how would we hurt somebody? Nothing but generous because giving to somebody would be like family. You know, When you give something to someone in your family You don't think of yourself as doing a generous act. You prepare dinner for your family. It's not a generous act, it's just a thing that you do. Or one of my teachers once said to me, if your hand picks up, if you are hungry and there's food on your plate and you pick it up and put it in your mouth, you don't think of it as a generous act, it's just what people do. And uh, if your family is in front of you, you feed them. How about if we saw the whole world as family and fed them? That all, of the, uh, that all of the behaviors that come from seeing everybody is in the same boat, just like me, would happen if we saw that everybody's in the same boat, just like me. Paramita practice uh, is a, uh, sometimes, so sometimes we talk about if we become clear, then we will behave with compassion in all the ways that compassion expresses itself, generosity, morality, all of that out of compassion, will be kind. There's a way of thinking about, uh, instead of waiting for that insight to arise so that then we can be compassionate and kind, that we could start with training ourselves to be compassionate and kind and hope to have some insight arise from it. So actually, this is a chart which I'm proud of. I made it up. It's, it's not in any text except the book that I wrote, and I made it up for that text. And I made it up because I actually, I'm, I'm a chemist. I was trained as a chemist. And I like equations that if you do this and you add this and you'll get to that, and this is what you'll have as a result. And I was very much taken with the idea that I heard from my teachers that if I practiced and I paid attention, I would have insight. If I had enough insight, I'd have wisdom. And if I'd have wisdom, I'd be compassionate. And I decided, what if that doesn't happen? What if I pay attention? I meditate and I don't have that insight. And I don't get that wisdom. How about if I start behaving as if I did at the other end of the equation and see if I behave in a scrupulous way, whether that will clear my mind so that the insight will come backwards. And, and so I'll start from the, the the fruit of the insight and see if the insight. So there's a whole book about that uh, called Pay Attention, by the way, for goodness sake, uh, which uh, is... <laughs> When it was about to be published, some journalists called me because they were interview me for something, and they said, i'm uh, by the way, have you written something new? And I I said, yeah, yes, indeed. You know, I have a book that's just coming out next month. And they said, what's the name of it? And I said, pay attention, for goodness sake, which sounds like I was scolding them for not having paid attention earlier in the conversation. They said, no, 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 no that's the name of the book, excuse me. Didn't mean to hurt your feelings. <laughs> But we uh, but really would pay attention for goodness' goodness's sake. And in the past several weeks, we've talked about generosity and morality and renunciation. And I realized today that next week I'll be out of town. And I couldn't do seven paramitas, the remaining ones, in one day. So I wanted uh, to skip to the last two. And I wanted to put them in the context of the whole chart and give it to you. And promise you that we'll come back to the chart, what we don't do in it today. I like this chart because it suggests, and I believe it's true, that you can bring attention to any one of those particular capacities of mind and heart. And that it, by developing it, it will pull other ones into more clarity. And I particularly want to talk about, oh, good, thank you. Um, I particularly want to talk about the last two of them, uh, loving kindness and equanimity. Uh, in some sense, they are all representations of each other. Do you remember two weeks ago, we said we had little groups where everybody discussed all of them through the lens of renunciation. We they're all forms of renunciation. They're all forms of generosity. They're all forms of compassion, really. And they're all forms of kindness, all of them. And say, oh, well, patience, how is that compassion? Well, the other person's not ready to do what you want to do, or it hasn't happened yet. It's a compassionate act to yourself, not to get irritable and to say, well, it's not time yet. You can see them all through each other's lens. But I wanted to talk about the, the, the last two, equanimity and loving kindness, just because it seems so crucial in terms of how the world is now. Maybe... It's as, as crucial as ever, or more crucial than ever, who knows, for us to think about the possibility of really having a heart so uh, habituated to kindness that it does nothing that it blesses, that it wishes well for anyone and anything that um, it's not so startled by what happens, by what frightens it that it closes. It's actually probably more correct to say a mind that's so filled with that. And, that, and actually in, in, in the Pali language, the word for heart and mind is really the same word. So it's really a mind that is so filled with the clarity about everyone's in the same boat and so filled with the clarity that there is no greater peace than a mind that's wishing well, that it doesn't stop the wishing well, that even when it's hurt or startled, that it can somehow respond by saying, take care of yourself, let me help you. That so it's such a, it's a fantastic vision of the possibility of the human mind. So I want to tell you, I, I want to give you the chart and hope to get up to it and tell you a story that a friend of mine told me yesterday. And I, A friend of mine who lives on the East Coast called, and she told me a dream that she had had. And it's a great dream. So first of all, I said, I wish I had, I'd had that dream. That's a great dream. And then she told me an interpretation of the dream, which I wanted to share with you. And uh, then I said, uh, 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 she's also a mindfulness teacher, by the way, back east. So I said, um, can I teach you tomorrow at Spirit Rock? Can I tell you? I won't tell, I "I won't say your name. It's an intimate thing to tell people, somebody else's dream. She said, you could say my name, but I won't. I'll tell you her dream, though. I particularly thought about this, I I plan to tell you this dream, particularly this morning, when we were saying our prayers on behalf of different people. Someone mentioned the name of someone who was going through some particularly dark time and hoping that they could see the light at the end of it. So my friend said, I dreamt I was riding on the uh, 72nd Street Crosstown Bus in Manhattan. And as I was riding along, just past um, a particular building, the Dakota, it's a particular big apartment house, it's lovely. She said, just past the Dakota, there was a sign that said apartment for rent, $180 a month.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So she thought, that's impossible,
0: $180 a month in this area. But, you know, you want to check that out, you know. So she said, I got off the bus, I was a little bit put off because I had to go through a long alley to get to where this apartment was from the back, and the alley was very dark. She said, but um, I walked through the alley, and she said, on the way, I thought, it's not going to be true that it's $184 a month. It can't be. And uh, when she got there, she discovered that it was $184 a month. And the person who was uh, renting the apartment met her at the door. Actually, the person who was renting the apartment, I'm, just to keep the anonymity about this, is a fairly well-known Jungian analyst, and my friend is a Jungian, So, said, uh, I was met at the door by so-and-so. And she said, oh, yeah, it is for rent. It's $184 a month. So in her dream, she said, I thought to myself, it's probably going to be in a really run-down condition. She said, but I walked into the room, and it was a one-room apartment, but it was great. It was so nicely organized, wonderful Pullman kitchen. Wonderful bed sitting area wonderful little table area probably she said probably the lighting is really bad Probably it's not going to have windows <laughs> It had windows And she said, well probably the flooring is going to be really bad. This is all the dreams I look down the floor. It's a really great kind of floor covering that actually looks like real good Carpeting She said, she said the, the, so the whole of the dream was like that then, the, then the, she proceeds into the negotiation She's going to rent the apartment and she got up and she said, uh, she said, when I got up, I thought to myself, that whole dream was about thinking it's impossible, and then it's not impossible. It's an impossible dream. Isn't that a line from the song to dream, the impossible dream? She said, I got up and I realized that Jung said, if you have a dream of the impossible, that you have, then you have to allow for the impossible to happen in your life. So then she said, I said, that's great. She said, you know, I'm thinking about, well, I'm thinking about the things that I have made a decision are impossible and that might not be, and that I don't even think I've made that decision. But in my secret mind, I've made that decision. Like, I, I, I wonder on what level I really keep as brightly zealous burning in my mind, the faith that I really could have a heart that wasn't closed, a mind that didn't close, that I could yeah. in all <clears throat> circumstances keep my capacity to love alive. Why not? People do it, we hear about them. They say, oh, well, that was a saint, you know, that that person who did, was able to do that, that person's a saint even the saints were human beings. The Buddha was a human being. How about that as an impossible dream? She said, well, if you're going to tell about that, you ought to read the passage from uh, Alice in Wonderland from Lewis Carroll. Do you remember the queen talking to Alice and saying, um, Oh Alice says, there's no use trying, said Alice. One can't believe impossible things. And the queen responds, I dare say you haven't had much practice. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. <laughs> Why, sometimes I believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I thought to myself, how about, what impossible things could I believe, and what would they do for my practice? So while, so while, I, while I was talking to her, she said, well, I'm going to send you one more. She actually faxed me that piece from Lewis Carroll. And on it, she, said, she added this one. When you are convinced that all exits are blocked, either you take to believing in miracles or you stand still like a hummingbird. The miracle is that the honey is always there, right under your nose, only you were too busy searching elsewhere to realize it. The worst is not death, but being blind, blind to the fact that everything about life is in the nature of the miraculous.
1: That's Henry Miller in the
0: nature of the miraculous.
1: What are we gonna say? Oh, another synchronicity with this dream, Sylvia, is that the Dakota is where John Lennon and Yoko lived. I, I even remember, um, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Oh, oh
0: there you go, oh, there you there go. You. Phyllis is pointing <laughs> out the Dakota is where John Lennon lived. Yeah. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm the, uh, <laughs> and, imagine. and imagine, imagine, which reminds me of the, um, of a kid's uh, riddle. Uh, imagine that you're in a box and that the box has no doorways, uh, or the bo- it has one door, but the key is on the outside of the door. How are you going to get out? And when you say, I don't know, the child says to you with great glee, stop imagining. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know?
0: Imagine you're in a box, you know, stop imagining. You know? But you miss that because you're already up the fiddling of the key, you know?
1: Stop imagining.
0: So, but how about stopping imagining that we couldn't do it? Condition that kind of heart, you know? What would that be like? I think about, and this reminds me of, I hadn't thought about it until this moment, uh, Suzuki Roshi saying, uh, that you have to come to the zafu or the chair or the whatever every sitting like it's the first time, like you never sat before. We sit down here every week and maybe I hope you sit down at home sometime during the week. Whenever you do, we sit down, we say, oh, yes, I sit every day. And However many times we sit every day with the express purpose of, okay, this is my meditation time. How many times do we sit down thinking, this very time, I may see through once and for all the final fetter that keeps my mind caught in um, some delusion, and the principal delusion is that it couldn't be otherwise, and it could be otherwise. I mean, that's that. that certainly, if I believe that teaching that it is possible, peace is possible in this very life, in the middle of Sturm and Rang, in the middle of things happening to you. That does not mean that the peace means that you like what's happening to you. The peace means that you are not in contention with the fact that that moment is happening to you. That you can say, this is what happens. This is one of those things. I won't tell you the whole story because I've done so many times. But you remember that story I told you of the, of the, the woman in the antique store? whose great piece of advice to me was these things happen. I was complaining about something that went wrong in a transaction about an antique I'd bought. In the end, she made it as clear as anything to her. And she said, these things happen. And it's become like a watchword in my mind because the truth is, everything happens. These things happen. All the things that we mentioned, some dreadful, some wonderful, some hopeful, some worrisome to people, that we mentioned in our prayers for people, all of those things happen. One of the things, one of the benefits to me of us saying those prayers out loud, not even, and especially mentioning what's happening with that person, not just a name. I'm fine to pray for a name of a person. But one of the things that I learn about so and so is having a divorce, so and so who's uh, having this really important chemo, so-and-so who's had this diagnosis, so-and-so who's had this fear, so-and-so who's had this good news, is I keep thinking, oh yeah, that happens, and that happens, and that happens, and that happens, everything happens. And then what it does is it makes it more possible when things happen to me, not for me to get lost in woe is me. It's really woe is us, look what's happening, you know? That's really the condition of human beings is woe is us. And also, hooray for us, anyone who has forgotten that to be alive at all to begin with is a miracle. That this planet didn't fall out of its orbit since yesterday, is a miracle.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That it still more or less works with whatever destruction we're doing on it, that we can drink water here at least. It's a miracle <coughs> to be able to find something that delights the mind into out of its box yeah
1: i can i tell you a story about a miracle <laughs> yeah but you have
0: to stand up so everybody will hear oh, it
1: really stand up really <laughs> <laughs> okay well i've been i've been telling i've been telling people a little bit the story about my sister mo who who went through her chemo and um, after she finished the numbers kept going up 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 and it was, and my
0: brother, who is a physician, kept saying, you know, it's inevitable, you got to go back in chemo, this is it. And we had the class here where you said, hope is saying no to what's exactly in front of you. And I, I told her that, and I said, I mean, we talked about it, and I said, it, it doesn't have to be that way, it doesn't have to be that way. The next day she went in, and since then, the last three times, the numbers have gone down. Mm. And yeah. she thinks it's a miracle. <laughs> I think it's a miracle. <laughs> yeah. well, but I think that, I mean, that that's it, you know. just. I mean, I think that's where our choice comes. Mm. And and just deciding and just saying no to what somebody else says or what everybody says is, mm-hmm. is inevitable. I think that some, I mean, this is what I believe.
1: <laughs> I'm very
0: happy about your sister-in-law. You know. I'm yeah. very glad to hear that. I'm sure everybody is who never even heard before about your sister-in-law, and particularly because we have been hearing about your sister-in-law, on a, so everybody has a connection now for a while. I'm very glad about that. And I'm thinking also, as you said, such a good teaching that I'm really happy you did that, Susan, because one of the things that it reminds me about that, it was Václav Havo, by the way, who said that saying uh, no, is that when we we lose hope, it's really because we've made a decision that we already know what the outcome is going to be. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be ever. You know?
1: Uh,
0: You don't know what people will develop tomorrow the magic pill for ovarian cancer, or the magic pill for something else. Somebody will just know. I mean, we know things now. Someone discovered penicillin at some point. It was a magic pill. A lot of people stop dying of other kinds of diseases. When we think our life is over, not even from a physical reason, but all the you know when relationships end. And I think, oh, that was what it was about, coming to the end of a relationship and not seeing that there might be a new life. When the mind is overwhelmed with grief, which it is at the, at the death of anything, like a relationship or the death of a person, it forgets that there's you know, a day after tomorrow or next year and that we don't really know what's going to happen in that period of time. I think it was here a few weeks ago that someone in the morning prayers talked about their neighbor who had moved into an assisted living or something like that at 87, feeling that she couldn't really manage anymore on her own, and was now marrying at 88, <laughs> the love of her life. And we all laughed because... Of, so, you know, that seems, you know, it's, it's not a usual thing to happen. It's very unusual. Yeah. But it's a very good story to tell. It's a true story. <laughs> Just to make the point of you don't know what is actually going to happen. We're mostly frightened by what we think might happen. You know, that's kind of, you don't know ever what's going to happen. And also, we're we're really talking about the miracle of getting better. I also want to put into that, which I certainly hope she does, I want to put into the mix the miracle of not getting better and being able to do that with a mind that still loves until the last minute, Mm -hmm. that exits this world saying, I love you or thank you. Uh, and is able to do that. That's actually what I'd like to be able to do. So I wanted to read you about a non-contentious mind because somebody... Oh, I know who it was. It was Tony. Tony... uh, uh, um, Tony Bernhardt, who teaches here sometimes when I'm not here, who will be here next week teaching because I'll be away for a week, told me about... uh, He said... uh, you should uh, read this uh, sutta, sutta one twenty-eight in the Middle end Discourses of the Buddha. He said, "This is this very good line in it." It's a very good line in it, by the way. It has to do with uh, uh, the Buddha visiting uh, a comi- the Buddha visiting a community of uh, monks that's very contentious, and uh, talking to them about really not being contentious. You know, and there's a way of reading this. And thinking it just has to live, it just has to do with being in community. That if you're going to live in community, it's way better not to be contentious because <laughs> it makes an unpleasant community. And um, talking about the contentious community uh, that he discovers, this is the beginning of this. Uh, so a certain bhikkhu went to the Buddha and, after paying homage to him, said, "The venerable sir." The bhikkhus here at Kasambi have taken to quarreling and brawling and are deep in dispute, stabbing each other with verbal daggers. It would be good, venerable sir, if a blessed one would go to these bhikkhus out of compassion. And he does, and he talks to them. And this in particular uh, sutta uh, is the one in which I didn't realize this until I was reading it yesterday has these lines which I have read before and read to you that come out of the Dhammapada. So the very same lines, the Dhammapada is a connection of the sayings of the Buddha. I had not realized that these very same lines that are in the Dhammapada are also in this particular sermon. He's um, talking about living in community here. He's, and he says, When many voices shout at once, none considers himself a fool. Though the community, though the sangha is being split, none considers himself to be at fault. Having forgotten thoughtful speech, they talk obsessed by words alone. Uncurb their mouths, they brawl at will. No one knows what leads him so to act. And then this is what people are thinking. He abused me, he struck me, he defeated me, he robbed me. In those who harbor thoughts like these, hatred will never be allayed. That's really, you see that all over the place. Love is never hatred is never ended by hatred. By love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. That's how you usually see it in the Dhammapada, but here it is. In those who harbor thoughts like these, hatred will never be allayed, for in this world, hatred is never allayed by further acts of hate. It is allayed by non-hatred. That is the fixed and aged, ageless law. And it talks about finding worthy friends. This is the part that I really like. This is the part that um uh, uh Tony told me about talked about on another occasion not long after that with the quarreling and disputing beakers. The Buddha goes on to another community where there are three beakers living together in a uh, in a community in the woods and uh uh Someone sees him living in a park, and the park keeper saw the blessed one coming in the distance, and said, don't enter this park, recluse. There are three clansmen here seeking their own good. Don't disturb them. And someone else said, listen, listen, park keeper, this is the Buddha. They'll be happy to see him, in other words. Let him in. So he goes in, and they pay homage to him, and then the Buddha says, how are you? And he says, we're doing well, blessed one. We are comfortable, and we are not having any trouble getting alms food. And the Buddha says, I hope... Anaruda, that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Isn't that a beautiful way to say that? Yeah. Uh, and a sh- and uh, oh, he, he said, and the, the response is absolutely venerable. So we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water. Viewing each other with kindly eyes. And the Buddha says, But uh, Anuruddha, how do you live thus? And the response, Well, Venerable Sir, as to that, I think this way. It is a gain for me. It is a great gain for me that I am living with such companions in the holy life. That's what I think to myself. I realize how lucky I am, in other words. Then he goes on to say, So, I maintain bodily acts of loving-kindness towards these other venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving-kindness to them, openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving-kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, I think to myself, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these other venerables wish to do? That's like, that's so sensible. That was the line that Tony told me that I loved so much. He said, imagine having a thought like that in a relationship. Well, why not just do what the other person wants to do instead of what I want to do? Uh, in my mind, maybe in yours, you can hear echoes in the relationship. You always get to do it your way. I know You don't hear my needs. <laughs> and then here's this bhikkhu saying, I say to myself, why not do it? Their way It's a great game for me to live in Concord with these people. It's such a wisdom line. It doesn't only sound like good housekeeping, can this relationship be saved. It sounds to me <laughs> like a tremendous awareness of the fact that, the first of all, the sense of my way. It's a momentary thing anyway. It's a, it's a thought that you had now that I'd like to do this, but it's not a fixed thing. There isn't, you know, there isn't actually a a fixed being that wants it that way. It's a momentary thought. And the very catering, do I have to have it my way? Or the very sense, not alone catering, the very sense I need to have it a certain way is already suffering in the mind. So that uh, this isn't just how to get along with somebody nicely. This is very huge wisdom teaching. Why not do it the other person's way? It preserves respect, it, cons- it preserves uh, kindness and calmness and friendship in the community and it protects me from the sense of feeling I have a need to have it other now it's your turn now it's my turn you know when then now I hear echoes of all the you know of children and grandchildren he had his turn now I get my turn you know. but the whole thing of of feeling I haven't had my turn and it isn't fair is already suffering in the wor- in the mind any contention with the moment as it is, wasn't fair, it isn't fair, I'm not having my turn, it's time for me to have my turn, I should be having my turn, is already painful. Even if they get your turn, then you have to pass it to somebody else right away, and then it won't be your turn anymore. Actually, it shifts it from what's what's happening in the moment, what's happening in the moment, what's happening in the world, to what's happening in the mind, is the attention in the mind. Is there some sense in the mind that things have to be another way? So that one little line there, I think to myself, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these other venerable ones wish to do? Then I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, he says to the Buddha, but one in mind. I like that very much. goes on to teach about how they support each other in their practice. Whoever returns first from alms rounds sets out the places to eat. Whoever finishes eating last cleans cleans up the whole area. Just everybody behaves as if there's one person living there and that they're not separate from each other. And I think to myself, it's so easy for me to feel separate from other people, not even on big things. I brought along two things. I wonder if it we have a little time to do them. Can I ask you one question? Sure. How it to yeah. I think
1: like, I wanna I'm just trying to apply what you're talking about into my own mind. And then I'm going oh, I to, the place my mind's going is towards um the role of women often being subservient to mm-hmm. the male. that's that's sort of a different form of the same thing. I don't know, it doesn't feel always appropriate to advise or to believe that giving up your way, Mm -hmm. what you hold dear or what you know is your your values or your needs Mm -hmm. as a being to another. So there's a little struggle in understanding that for me. And is that what equanimity is, sort of like always going, I don't really have any preferences or desires or needs. Just
0: let's do it your way. Now, well, listen, Caroline, this is a very hugely important point. And I'm very glad you brought it up, because uh, the, such a thing as equity in the world, and which we all want very much. I think it doesn't have to do with, um, uh, in a in sense, it's a very simple description of people living together In a where their common goal is to provide peace of mind in everybody's mind, so that they can be meditators together. That's their common goal. They share it. They understand that they are all they are all rooting for the other person. It's different in a in a say in a relationship where there might be uh, because of sexism. Some you know they're, they're not all in the same place. There are some people maybe wanting or expecting to to have different ends than the other person wouldn't be a fair society. This is a fair society. They've already decided they all have the same end in mind of the same ultimate end. I also think another way to think about it is not to say, you know, not to roll over, okay, we'll just do it your way on things like uh, things not being fair. That I think there would be a way. I'm hopeful that there is a way for because I'm doing it, or I think I'm doing it in my life, to speak out for what I think is fair, without um, uh, making the other person an enemy. I, this is this is, I think, the real clue. I have adversary. I you know I might think of somebody in a political debate as my adversary, but I want to think of them as not an enemy. Not that not because I want to be holy. Because I feel better if I don't think about them as an enemy, really. So maybe it would be a, a time to do, well. Here, here's the story. Well, the story about the people who come out on on that Christmas Eve, and they fight with each other, and they realize these are people. It's incomprehensible that they should go back and keep shooting each other. Yeah. You know that. You know here's another story that's 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 kind of in that genre. It's it's like a very small and tiny story. And, th- and that's such a, a wildly improbable story. And yet it happened and you think, why did people not learn? We could be otherwise. I have a friend, some of you have heard this story. I have a friend who is a, uh, a mediator. He does, he's, a, he's an accountant, he's a CPA with a big CPA firm who also has degrees in mediation. So he likes to mediate, be, he works, uh, he's called upon to mediate disputes between businesses that, you know, like like sometimes couples who are separating get a mediator. He works with businesses that are needing to settle disputes between them. Because he lives in a very uh, traditionally observant uh, Jewish community in a city in New Jersey, uh, he's called upon to mediate uh, for firms that, are uh, either dealing in in Judaica or for some aspect of Jewish life, so that people are selling products having to do with Jewish life, so that the participants are uh, always observant Jews with a prayer practice. He told me about mediating a dispute between two particular firms and uh, that thought that they had uh, wronged each other. They both felt that they were right They both had lawyers. They both had um, what do you call? Depositions. They came to these mediation hearings with piles of papers, and they mediated for several days. He said they they they're all very prepared with documentation, and that even you know he kept it fair and back and forth. That the room got tenser and tenser, and things were getting more and more heated as the day went by, and someone in the afternoon at some point would say it's time for afternoon prayers and they'd stop because you need to pray a certain particular service before the sun sets so everybody would stop they would stand up but they, you know if you if you if you chant fast you can finish that service in 10 minutes seven if you're really fast and it's not that long but here's a whole room full of people and in that moment they all turn in the same direction and they all by heart chant the afternoon liturgy, and then they sit down and they continue. The he said, but when they sat down and continued, it was different than before they did that. Mm-hmm. That first of all, it clears the mind a little bit. I, I've been thinking to myself, if I were to tell some, if I were to make for myself, it's you know the 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 rule. It's time for afternoon prayers. It might mean saying that liturgy. It might mean going for a walk around the block. It might mean um, uh, turning on the Mozart horn concerto and sitting quietly and listening to it. It might mean something. It means let's take a break from where we were so that the mind that's become tenser and tenser and tenser can settle itself down and then see with a bigger perspective again what's really happening here. And one of the perspectives that I imagine, and this is my gloss on that particular story, is that in that period of time what happens is their minds calm down a little bit and in the calm they remember that all of them are, share a particular purpose. They all share a particular point of view, like life is holy and it's worth saying something about that. Or there's a way uh, to connect oneself to the feeling of being in a sacred relationship with life, which is what I'd like to think that <coughs> stopping to meditate is about. There's a way to stop to remember, this is amazing, I'm alive. Was that Henry Miller quote? That everything is a display of the miraculous, that we can stand up at all
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and remember something by heart is a display of the miraculous. And in that moment, we say, well, all our, okay, all 20 of us in this room, or how many of us are in that room, we share that shared <coughs> context. We live, all of us, out of that shared context. And that shared understanding so we are adversaries but we're not enemies we are in this moment adversaries with different views but not enemies and for me it is so important to be able to parse the difference between adversary and enemy with my adversary I have to keep explaining that this won't work this way and it's not good for you it's not good for me it's not good for the world with my enemies Yes, sure. A a little story. Yes. On the day that my husband
1: and I got engaged, a very long time ago, he had a tear-off calendar, and he presented me with this little thing, and it said, Love does not consist in gazing at each other, but looking together in the same direction. And I think that that's what life is about. I think that's what I'm hearing from you, is that in adversarial situations as well as in loving situations, if you're looking together in the same direction, whether it's
0: firms or individuals, then you'll move forward. Ruth, yes. Ruth, thank you very much. I like that very much. And how to remember that we are looking in the same direction and how to, re- and how to actually allow for the impossible thought that every, or almost impossible thought, that everybody's actually looking in that same direction. That uh, the Dalai Lama says it very well when he says everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. They don't all see the route to happiness the same way that I do. But everybody wants to be happy. And so I make my view, aha, but that person's view of how to get happy is a deluded view. I have the right view and they have a deluded view. But first of all, who knows? And second of all, if that's true, is it not my uh, responsibility then to enlighten that person and teach them instead of vilifying them and pushing myself away from them. You know, if they were my child and they had a wrong view, I'd say, no, 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 that's not such a good way to do that. That's not going to work out. Let me show you a better way to do it. Here's, a, here's, a, here's like a, a real-life question, Carolyn. This happened to me over, uh, over the weekend. So you <clears> know <throat> I Did it go off? Is it all gone? Is it uh, still lighting up? Wait a minute. So I went. Uh, I went to a uh, great celebration of a, of a child's coming of age, and uh, so this child's family had come from all over the place. Anybody is going home to a child that would like this, right? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I unscrewed the battery in the back. You have to screw it back.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, so, uh, people, uh, relatives came from all. Over. We drove over the Santa Cruz Mountains in the snowstorm, and relatives came from all over the country, and everybody united in celebrating this really lovely young man on this coming of age ritual. And in one of the parties, actually on, on Sunday before we came home, having breakfast at the uh, at the, uh, this boy's home with. Uh, 50 or so assorted of his relatives from all over the place. So I'm talking with some very nice people, charming, lovely. And somebody said all of a sudden a tremendously bigoted remark, which actually included an ethnic slur in what they said. And um, I didn't know what to do for a minute. You know, I felt really, you know, when all of a sudden I think, eek you know what what should i say now <laughs> she, she actually she wasn't making the same as far as she was discussing some problem in her hometown and uh it was i was i was for a moment i didn't know what to say i couldn't actually answer her question because i got so caught up or i couldn't respond to her observation because i got so caught up in the way she had made her observation and and what she'd said, and my mind suddenly got caught with it, and I realized in that second moment I didn't like her. Um, nor did I. Uh, well, okay. So think a minute. Did that ever happen to you, something like that? Okay. Yeah. So tell the person next to you what you did in that circumstance. Let's have little groups of two. Because I don't want to tell you what I did. I want to hear what everybody else would do under those circumstances. Then I'll tell you what I did. What do you do in a circumstance like that? (laughs)
1: I can I she I think I don't know if you is so like so like so like so like <laughs> Excited. you. <go>, <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like
0: it when people that. <laughs> that was not me fishing. It was Susan. <laughs> I like it when people talk, but I love it, love it, I love it when, I, when I said, I don't plan to ask a question like that. And then suddenly as I'm talking along, it occurs to me, what do I know? Everybody should talk to each other. And, and, I, and when I do it, I mostly have not planned it in advance, but it seems to me all of a sudden, oh, people have to talk about it. Then I feel, then I look around and everybody's talking and I'm not hearing what everybody's saying. So, what are some of the things that you said? What are some of the things that you said? You know, like in one line, what do you do? Yeah. Or two lines. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That that uh, yeah. So telling your to, so just telling your side of the story, and not responding, not taking umbrage about these other people about ignorant people, or that they've attacked me by you know, not. Part
1: of it goes back to what you said. In the case of the reservation stuff, some of the comments are factually correct, so I don't really want to challenge it because I don't want to take sides Mm -hmm. I can only speak from my own experience and my Mm
0: -hmm. own feelings and hope that those stories maybe impact Mm -hmm. of you and just to speak from your point of view what else Mm-hmm. so it's telling somebody I don't agree with that but you, you know I have uh, uh, but the allowing them to have it you know. I I forget your name you told it to me My name's Bonnie. Bonnie Bonnie sometimes when I have enough equanimity I say uh, and I feel it's an appropriate thing to do I say to people I have another view you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know uh, which doesn't immediately push those off the table, because my view two views. <laughs> my view might be the opposite of theirs, actually, so probably not. But I, I'm less am timid about saying I have another view. But often I'm timid. I was timid the other day. So Ray, what do you think?
1: When I was in Cleveland, uh, I went there for two sessions. One for a week, and the second, and then back for uh, two weeks. First time I was confronting every young white male who was supporting the other side in a very virulent. And say join the army, and uh, you know I don't want my kid to get killed. Mm-hmm. You better join the army. And Then when I went back, uh, when I you know the same situations when people would be really damning toward Kerry or toward uh, people I supported, I would say, listen, you're in a difficult situation. Uh, if you really support what's going on, you either join and go over there and get killed possibly, or injured or whatever, or you don't go and let somebody else go for you, and you are a hypocrite that you'll have to deal with the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I said, I'm telling, I'm, tell, <laughs> I'm telling you. is tell laughing
0: because he probably doesn't think that's the kindest matter. <laughs> 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 uh, I'm
1: telling <laughs> you to be a hypocrite and mm-hmm. don't go because I really care if you live or die and they don't. Uh You'll deal with it emotionally later in your life, but don't get killed. Uh I really don't want you to get killed." And I I was much more effective Uh in reaching an individual, and Uh I really didn't want them to get killed. I I really wanted them to be
0: safe. Right, right. I think that the crucial thing, maybe, in whatever we choose to do is, uh, like when you said, I really don't want them to get killed, is not having made people enemies, so that you really do not wish them ill. Yeah. You know, but. so sometimes it, when you know when you have a wishing people ill thought, it's it's unpleasant to the wisher to have that. That I mean, that's really the crucial thing. It's not. It's actually on behalf of oneself that you pre- that you preserve the 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 good intention, and you teach people. What else we have? We have one more. Elizabeth. Well, you know, it gets a little complicated, because it's just like when you're telling the truth, uh, the person, uh, but you're not telling it in a good way. In this particular uh, situation, since I'm not saying the person's name, the are people who live in Houston. And uh, there's a person who was telling me about the great efforts that uh, the people in the Houston community, herself included, made to take in people who had come from the hurricane. Uh, and then she said what apparently is a true statement, uh, uh, she said, and the crime rate has gone up tremendously since uh, those people came. But she didn't say those people in the best way. And what startled me was the, was the word that she used for those people. And it's, again, the crime rate did go up in Houston. That's a true fact. Uh, and. I think when you know, for whatever reason we could imagine a lot of poor people <laughs> dispossessed. People uh, huh? like the people that had nothing came there with nothing and no job. And no job and running out of social services. Yeah. So for whatever reason the crime rate is up since those people came. And in our interchange she had just two sentences before, told me about various things that she and her community had done on behalf of the people who had come. I was feeling quite warm there. And really it was just the the slur, uh, the use of a bad word that startled me as if, if I responded to her, I hadn't noticed the bad word. I just didn't know what to do. My mind jammed over it. What I did was I got up, because I see it's 11 o'clock, I got up and I got another piece of quiche. (laughs) And then, and I thought about what am I going to do? That she knew she had startled me because I got up and went to get some more quiche. And I figured she felt badly. I so said, when I got up to get the quiche, I said, I'm getting some more quiche. I'm really interested in what, where else are you going to go while you're in the Bay Area. And she said, well, well, maybe travel south or so-and-so. So when I came back with the quiche, I said, I'm probably happy with picking out a good route to get there. So, because I wanted her to know that, you know, I, I did not want to continue the discussion about socioeconomic conditions in Houston and why they're like that, or why I'd gotten up so precipitously. But I really wanted to balance my own mind. I wanted to talk about something. I wanted her not to feel bad about having startled me. I figured she felt bad that she, you know. And I also figured to myself, I'm looking here about cultivating forgiveness as being one of the factors that leads to a mind of kindness. And if I don't forgive her for being a product of her environment then uh i haven't cultivated the loving kindness in my mind seems to me to be a perfectly nice woman who's a product of her environment and her culture and she doesn't you know and i live in a different culture where we where that where that particular where the particular use of words is a big deal and for her it isn't and to say every individual is the, the heir of their karma of their experience I needed to see her in the whole woman, not in a woman who says a racial slur. And I was concerned about having hurt her feelings because she frightened me out of my seat. Mm.
1: Uh, mm. 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 To that it's okay. I think, it
0: needs, I think it good that she that knew that it actually. actually I,
1: think you had a one. I, I, I think I
0: think she knew it. Uh I mean, I and mm. Yeah. Somebody else said to me the other day, in another context, this is a very important point, point. I don't, I will leave it hanging for two weeks. She said, I feel much better since I decided that it's not up to me to be in charge of the whole world.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I thought she said edifying. I, she I feel much better since I decided it's not up to me to edify the whole world. <laughs> I come from a whole long line of school teachers. We think it is up to us to edify the world. So I will be in Colorado, I hope, edifying next week. Uh, uh, and uh, then I'll be back the following Wednesday. And I hope if you have not met Tony before, how many people have been here when Tony teaches? Tony teaches in Davis. He's very, he's very wise and funny and... Uh, and uh, learned and I hope you come and meet him and then I'll be back the week after. Take a breath, let your breath out. Learn the name of the person next to you before you go and have a wonderful week. talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on March 15, 2006. It is an offering of the
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.